G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Turning our attention to issues around Iran and issues around our near neighbour to the north, Indonesia, and the West Papuan people uh, with the visit of the Indonesian president this week. Uh, Late last year, the Iranian regime announced an increase in the fuel price, and it triggered massive protests. Those protests quickly spread to over 50 cities and descended into violent riots. There were cries of death to the dictator, clerics get lost, and Shah of Iran returned to Iran. Those are the things that filled the air. Banks, offices, and Islamic centers were sacked and burned. And the protest morphed into an open revolt against the regime. Reaction from the regime in Iran was severe, as regime forces shot at protesters from rooftops and helicopters with a death toll estimated by Reuters at more than 1,500, 4,000 wounded and as many as 12,000 arrested. Then... Early this year, on the 11th of January, the regime gave up lying and finally admitted that it was responsible for the 8th of January shooting down of Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752, killing all 176 passengers, including 82 Iranians. Angry protests erupted again. Anti-regime slogans ran out again. So we're going to talk through some of the big issues facing Iran over this next hour, including the tensions developing because of the dramatic rise in conversions to Christianity. Elizabeth Kendall is back with us, and she is, of course, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as adjunct research fellow in the Arthur Jeffrey Center for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. She's also director of advocacy at Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020. Oh, hello, Neil. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth, so much to talk about Iran, but let's talk about something a little closer to home before we really get into the Iran issues. And those are issues around Indonesia, because Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, has been in Australia this week. And uh, there are all sorts of things that are happening trade-wise between Australia and Indonesia. But there are some human rights issues that are in play. We've spoken about these late last year to do with the West Papuan people. Uh, What's your broad uh, analysis of what's happening to West Papua and the uh, indigenous people there and their relations with the Indonesians? Yes, well, with President Wododo being in Australia, it was an especially good time for Christian Faith and Freedom uh, in Canberra, where I'm Director of Advocacy. Uh, It was a perfect time for us to, to raise the issue again as we did last year, of the West Papuans who have been displaced from their homes in the Nduga Regency. Now, 
this is what we spoke about uh, last year when we spoke about um, West Papua. So a, a President Wododo, who's doing very similar to what President Xi has done in China, out through the West and into Tibet and everything, where he's run these big freeways and high-speed trains with the idea of um, spreading influence into those areas and developing them. So what President Wododo is doing in Indonesia is he is saying all the problems of West Papua will be solved if we can bring economic development. We'll run this highway right through the middle of you know, the pristine rainforest and right over all the mountains, which is it's going to be the most expensive highway in the world to build. And and he hasn't consulted the West Papuans. And the idea is primarily economic. He's aiming to link all the great mining centres together. Indonesia will make a lot of money on it. And he's saying that if we can bring economic development to West Papua, all the problems will be solved. And the West Papuans are saying, all you're going to do is flood the place with Javanese Muslims and and ruin our lives. So the highways become a source of great contention. And what happened um, in in December of uh, 2018 was some West Papuans murdered some Indonesian workers on that on that freeway on the freeway, the highway being built. Now. That what happened was the government sent the military into West Papua, into Nduga, and they what they call they swept it. So everyone was displaced and expelled from their homes. Uh, you know, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced from their homes. And but the thing is, they've never left. <laughs> so the military is still there to this day. And when we spoke about it last year, a report had just been released saying that among the uh, displaced Ndugans, those displaced from the highlands regency of Nduga, they're mostly in, in, in camps that have been set up around churches because West Papua is built on the back of the church. You know, the church is like the central organisation, but they can't cope. And because the Indonesian government refuses to recognise the West Papuans as victims of conflict, it won't take responsibility for delivery of aid. And the whole region remains closed and they're starting to die. Now, when we spoke last year, the death toll was at 129. Today, uh, we've just found out from Amnesty International, uh, 139 it was. Today, we've found out from Amnesty International, they reported in mid-January, the death toll from completely preventable injuries, diseases and from starvation is 263. So these are Melanesian Christian Papuans who are being displaced from their homes. They are dying of starvation because of the Indonesian military. So West Papuans, a Christian people, being swamped Mm -hmm. by Indonesian Islamic people. Uh, Now, governments make decisions that they would say would be just an economic interest. But somehow rather here, and I'll get your insights, Elizabeth Kendall, because the way that the government allows the Islamic force to be able to take control and, as you say, sweep away the Christians, that's what we're talking about here. And there was some new legislation that was introduced, I'll get your thoughts on this, that enables the Indonesian military powers to arm militias. Uh, 
and these Islamic militias then become like a proxy to the Indonesian army who can say that we're at arm's length from everything that's happening here and uh, putting down every element that threatens Indonesia's cohesion. So when we talk about an Islamic regime in power uh, or an Islamic favouring regime in power, there's something here that really poses a threat to the Christian populace in West Papua. What are your thoughts on that legislation as it went through? Well, the legis- what the legislation does is that it, is, it allows the Indonesian military, which is predominantly Javanese Muslim and has a pretty grim record in terms of its uh, nationalist, uh, ethnic and religious persecution and discrimination. I mean, we saw it with our own eyes. The Australians saw it with, in Indonesia, in uh, East Timor. When the Indonesian military worked alongside the red and white, the Miraputi of the Javanese um, uh, militias and the Lashkar Jihad, the Indonesian jihadist groups, to kill East Timorese people. And they use those groups as their proxies. Now, what the law will enable the military to do is to actually fully legitimise those groups. So, yeah, I'm quite concerned about that. Okay, well... Just let me clarify, the number of people displaced out of Nduga is about 40,000. I think I said hundreds of thousands, which is a bit of an exaggeration. So it's about 40,000. Uh, West Papuans are displaced, and so the death toll so far from of those in camps dying of hunger and sickness is uh, 263. Okay, well, there might be listeners who'd like to contribute to the conversation today, and uh, we can talk about West Papua, uh, but we're also going to be talking about what's going on in Iran. And so we'll divert our attention to Iran, and as I mentioned in the introduction Uh, to our conversation today, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, all sorts of unrest happening in Iran. I wonder if you've got an overall perspective on those things that we began to talk about as I uh, was introducing our segment today. Uh, There are serious uh, issues in Iran where the people are revolting against the regime. What are your thoughts? Oh, it's very, really, really interesting. I mean, when when you see these... uh, when you, you know that people who go out onto the streets in Iran, in Tehran and other cities, when they are actually putting their lives on the line, it's not like in Australia where you might get, oh, you might get told to behave yourself, mm. or even in another country where you might get a water cannon or sent to jail. Iran is a country where the um, regime is not afraid to bring the revolutionary guards out against you. That's what they exist for. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is different to the Iranian army, right? The Iranian army defends the state from its external enemy. The Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps is a separate army which exists to protect the regime and to protect the revolution. And that means that, you can, that they can kill Iranians, anyone who threatens the, the Iranian revolution, anyone who threatens the rule of the clerics, can be shot and killed by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. They also have their own uh, militia called the Basiji Militia, which is, I think they're mostly university-age students and they get discounts on their fees and the like for being part of the the Basiji Militia. And they will kill 
people who threaten the 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 uh, foundation of the Islamic revolution and the clerics. So to go out and protest in Iran is to put yourself in the firing line of the revolutionary guards. Uh, interesting. As, you know, as, as yep. you said, Reuters estimates about 1,500 Iranian protesters shot and killed. Uh, sometimes in a nation like ours, we don't appreciate just how heavy-handed a regime might respond to any sort mm-hmm. of uh, protest like this. But the idea, as I understand it, shutting down the Internet, uh, keeping quiet any communications of those who might rise up uh, to extinguish those protests. And then when protesters who were arrested, I think I mentioned 12,000 arrested, uh, beaten, tortured and forced mm. into televised confessions. When when the regime takes action, they really mean business. Oh, they, they certainly do. And people who go out on the streets, they know that. And that's what really sort of rattles me, uh, the, the sort of courage that's involved. And it's not, I think it's even beyond courage. There's an element of sheer desperation involved here. And there's a lot of things happening um, it's very, very unfortunate that that the American administration uh, ramped up its sanctions on Iran in uh, 2016, 2017, or 2017, right after the Iranian people voted for a more reformist uh, government. Um, and, and we can talk about that too, the way Iranians are voting and what's happening with elections. But the thing is that there were elections in 2017. Uh, the, the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Revolutionary Guards did not get the man they wanted. They filled the air with propaganda for a particular hardliner and the people said no. And they came out and they voted uh, against, against what the regime wanted, which is actually like that the first time for as long as we can remember, for a long time. So this was a big change. And what happened when the sanctions were increased is that the hardliners are now blaming the what we call the reformists. They're still Islamists, but they would like a more open Iran. But the hardliners are blaming everything on the reformists, even though it's not their fault. It's not their fault. And so everything's got worse. And the, the sanctions mean that the people in the street are struggling to survive. They can't get jobs. Um, they, the, the currency has crashed, completely crashed, which is really difficult even for, like, Iranian students in Australia who have been getting supported from home. All of a sudden, the money's worthless, completely worthless. So when the government puts the fuel price up because they can't afford to offer cheap fuel anymore... The people just collapsed and they said, oh, we can't, we can't survive. We can't cope like this. And they know the regime is corrupt. The whole regime is corrupt. So there's a strong element of sheer desperation involved in the protests. Uh, desperation and anger all mixed into courage. It's almost that courage that says, if I had to live like this, I'd rather die trying to get rid of you. <laughs> All right. It's a, it's a really interesting state of affairs. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. 
Well, some insights you're probably not likely to hear too many other places. So wonderful to have you with us today on this Friday edition of 2020. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest, International Religious Liberty Analyst. And we're talking about the issues as they are developing in the nation of Iran. Elizabeth, I mentioned that there is an election coming up in Iran just a week or so away. But before we get into developments there and a controlling influence of an Islamic regime in the nation of Iran, let me take you to what we're hearing about in some level of frequency. It's the idea of the growth of the Christian church in Iran increased number of conversions to Christianity from Islam. Give us your insights into what you understand about the growth of Christianity there. Well, it's actually something that's really, it's palpable and it's amazing. So if you think about, most most Christians anyway who have been watching world events and watching mission are aware that through the latter part of the 20th century, And around the turn of the century, there was a massive real awakening of Chinese people, both inside China and in the Chinese diaspora, Chinese people turning to Christ in large numbers for decades. Uh, First, you know, all through the rural areas, and then after Tiananmen Square, through the urban centres, Christianity really took off. And it took off... Uh, particularly in the urban centres after Tiananmen Square because of disillusionment, profound disillusionment with the Chinese Communist Party. And this is where we've seen some of the biggest conversions to Christianity amongst the Chinese. And people who have watched what's happened, what was happening in China just would say, wow, this is amazing, you know, God is on the move in China. And he still is. There's no doubt about that. But there's a sense in which something has begun in Iran. God is on the move in Iran. And I'd say it started, you know, some decades ago with the first martyrs in Iran who were Armenian Christians. Um, and uh, they, they felt the Lord speak to them in their hearts and say, no, you must witness to the Muslims. And it was a very slow beginning and they became martyrs. But in recent decades, uh, there has been a change, and there is it's like a seed was planted, and now it, it it's growing. And the Holy Spirit is at work. God is on the move in Iran. It's amazing. And people have been converting to Christ in large numbers. People have been leaving Islam in large numbers. And part of it, too, is related to a revival uh, of and a yearning for Persian culture, because the Islam of the of the Islamic Revolution and the Islam that the hard line inflexible Islam of the clerics really represses Persian culture, you know, which is big on poetry and literature and philosophy and music. I mean, and art, and it's all repressed by this hard line Islam, and there's a yearning to get it back again. There's even a revival of the Zoroastrian religion in Iran, the ancient religion of Cyrus the Great, you know. So there's just, there's just a, a yearning for Persian culture and to be free of the shackles of, of, of this restrictive, repressive Islam 
and the shackles of the clerics and the corruption of the clerics. And in this movement for a search for freedom and identity, Iranians are saying, well, we don't even have to be Muslims if we don't want to. And they're, they're seeking, but the real thing is that the Holy Spirit is on the move. And Iranians are experiencing, you know, dreams and visions and revelations. They're, um, they're just coming, they're coming to Christ in amazing numbers inside Iran and in the diaspora. So in Australia and America and Europe and everywhere. It's a movement of God that is palpable. And we might say, wow, when we hear that sort of thing happening, and that's confirming some of the conversation I've had in recent times with people as they've talked about the dynamic growth of Christianity in the nation of Iran. Now, when there is an Islamic regime, one that isn't afraid to crack down on those who are dissenters, uh, and then there is the rise of Christianity, let's talk about persecution of Christians in Iran because the Iranian regime isn't shy of arresting and jailing Christians on very minor counts. Uh, what are your thoughts for some of the stories that are emerging? Yes, well, uh, the per- persecution of Christians in Iran is a serious uh, business. And what we always need to remember is that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. You know, God, the Holy Spirit is on the move in Iran. And we, as soon as we hear that, we should know in our hearts, our brain should tell us the devil is not going to take this lying down. He never takes it lying down. Some people think that um, uh, persecution causes church growth. It's actually the other way around. Uh, Persecution can destroy the church. It can rub it out. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, when there is church growth, there will be persecution because the devil will respond. The devil will resist and he will do everything in his power to thwart it. And, you know, in, in this, the regime is like his proxy. And so we have this Islamic regime that has both theological and political reasons to crack down hard on Christianity, and, uh, and they're doing it. And the case I mentioned in my recent, or one of the two cases I mentioned in my recent prayer bulletin on Iran, uh, is one I find deeply moving. She's just a young woman, 21 years old, and she's now disappeared. And she was, she was arrested during the January protests uh, in Tehran. So this is after, after the Iranian regime confessed that they shot down the plane uh, and Iranians came out onto the streets. She was there. I, I don't even know if she was protesting or not. That's sort of irrelevant. She was arrested. But because she already has a record as an active and open Christian, her plight is sort of complicated. So she was arrested. Her name is Fatima, Fatima Mohammedai, but she likes to be known as Mary. So I'll call her Mary from now on. Um, Mary was uh, arrested back in um, November 2017, so two years ago. She would have been 19 years old, a teenager, like a, a university, early university student, and she was arrested in a house church. She was tried in a, in a revolutionary court. She was found uh, guilty of being involved in um, Christian activities, guilty of membership in evangelical groups, 
and guilty of acting against national security by propagating, uh, you know, propaganda against the regime. And she was sentenced to six months in Evan Prison, the, the prison for political prisoners in, in Tehran. And for a 19-year-old girl, I would think that would be uh, terrifying. A 19-year-old Christian girl, a new believer, that would be absolutely a terrifying experience. But she came out stronger than she went in. She has faced continual harassment from the regime. And in December of last year, so in December 2019, just two, three months ago, <clears throat> her university, on the eve <clears throat> of her final exams, just suspended her, kicked her out. So she's done this degree. She's been working on this degree. And on the eve of her exams, they suspend her. For no reason, and she's absolutely certain it is because of this harassment from the regime towards her. And she went online and she posted on social media a protest about the, the persecution of Christians in Iran. And she did this not from Melbourne or not from somewhere safe in America. She did it from her home in Tehran, in Iran. She posted on social media against the persecution of Christians. So now she's been arrested and uh, no one knows where she is. Um, people suspect she's in a prison in Iran somewhere. But uh, it's really worrying. And yeah. you know, she's just a young, a young woman. I'd say she's very vulnerable and um, amazingly strong. But she's still a young woman in the hands of the Revolutionary Guards. And she's going to really, really need our prayers not only for her own strength, but for protection, that God will protect her from violent hands and all the things that could happen to her in there. So people who are accused of engaging in Christian activities, uh, they're acting against the national security of an Iranian regime. And interestingly, and I'm just, we're only a couple of minutes out from news, but a quick one here because her name is Fatima Muhammad. Muhammadi, uh, but she also likes to be known as Mary. Interesting way that someone like her might adopt a more Christianized type of a name. Uh, that really is wearing your faith on your sleeve, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, I, I said I understand it and I understand the attraction for a woman to call herself Mary. But I actually really love it when someone says, my name is Fatima Muhammad and I'm a Christian. You know, my name is is Muhammad Mustafa, and I'm a Christian. You know, we're going to, we're, heaven, heaven is going to be filled with names from every language, tribe, people, and nation. We will stand next to Muhammad in heaven, There's, and Fatima's in heaven. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's something new that God is doing in the world. Elizabeth, an important conversation we're having, and tensions rising, Elections in just a week or so, and the Islamic regime seems to be doing all they can to ensure a good outcome, because the last election didn't go their way. Let's come back to that election and the fact that this could trigger all sorts of dramatic headlines about how they might uh, control the election process. Uh, yes, well, the, the, the elections in 2016 for the parliament actually produced a parliament that was dominated by reformists. Now, when you think about an Iranian reformist politically, they're not actually a reformer that 
in the way we might think. They really are just talking about have, wanting a more open economy. They're more capitalist, probably, is a good way of thinking of it. They want to have better relations with other countries and to have more money flowing in. The hardliners basically are uh, quasi-socialists, uh, want a really strict Islam that would prevent them, so strict that it would prevent them from uh, interacting with, with the infidel, you know, great Satan, America, and things like that. But um, ultimately, it's the Guardian Council, which is the ruling council of Shia clerics, that makes all the decisions. So you can, the people can, can elect a reformist-dominated parliament, but if the Guardian Council doesn't, doesn't approve their policies, nothing will be enacted. And so the, the, uh, the last number of years where they've had a reformist-dominated parliament have been really frustrating because almost every, uh, every policy that would bring about more openness and more engagement with the outside world has been rejected by the Guardian Council. Uh, so it's been really frustrating. Now, but at the same time, the clerics are blaming the parliament, the reformists in the parliament, for all Iran's troubles. Now, when it comes to elections, the Guardian Council vets all the candidates. So they get rid of anyone who might be a threat to them, anyone who's not Islamic enough, for example. So everyone on the list will be uh, someone who the Guardian Council has approved of and they will guarantee, they will guarantee to the best of their ability that the, the parliament will at least represent the, the values of the Islamic Republic. I mean, Rouhani, President Rouhani, we call him a reformist, but he's a fully blown Islamist, you know. He wants to blow Israel off the face of the earth. He's ex executed and during his first term more than 3,000 people on capital crimes, which includes insulting Islam. You know, I mean, it's not... People get a bit confused when they hear the term reformist. Still an Islamist. So the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Guardian Council control everything. And what they've done ahead of the elections, and the elections are next Friday, so... Today is Friday the 14th. It's Friday the 21st of yeah. so the elections in Iran. And the Guardian Council has vetted the candidates' list to remove almost all the reformists. So hardliners will dominate the parliament. It's already guaranteed. In fact, 90 sitting parliamentarians have now been uh, stripped. They've now been... Uh, uh, obliterated, deleted off the candidate's list so they can't get re-elected. In 158 out of 290 seats, that's more than half the seats up for grabs, there will be no competition. There will only be hyper-conservative hardliners sitting. So it's already guaranteed the hardliners will dominate the next parliament, which you're, means that persecution will escalate. You're describing the way that a dictatorial regime can continue to hold power by their own manipulation, as mm. you say. Uh, there uh, would be a so-called democratic election uh, of the 
parliament in Iran, but because you've got this vetting of candidates and only allowing candidates to stand that would stand for your Islamic uh, ideology, then uh, you're going to be able to affect the way that the parliament will look and therefore control over the parliament. I wonder, Elizabeth Kendall, whether you have any insights as to whether ordinary Iranians recognise this level of manipulation that's happening in their country, or is this part of what's fueling uh, this dramatic unrest that's coming out of Iran? Oh, they recognise it all right. The Persians are pretty darn smart people, and they know exactly what's going on. Now, um, there was a time when they thought that the best way to deal with this manipulation uh, was to boycott the elections, just to protest by means of boycotting. And what they got was President Ahmadinejad <laughs> because of, they didn't come out to vote and Ahmadinejad was, Ahmadinejad was elected. And, of course, then the, the clerics sit back and they say, hey, well, we had elections. We have a democratically elected parliament. We have a democratically elected president. Iran is a democracy. And, you know, it's just brilliant. It's just so brilliant. It's hilarious. But um, the people know what's going on. Now, they rejected that in the the last elections. In 2016, they came out in force and voted for their parliament and and the reformists dominated. They then came out and voted in force in 2017 and they rejected the choice of Khomeini and the Revolutionary Guards and they, they rejected the hardliner. His name was Ibrahim Rassi. That's who the regime wanted elected as president. They rejected him and voted for Rouhani to come back in and they won. So they proved that they can come, when they come out and vote, they can vote against what the regime wants. Now, what the regime's doing now is they're just getting rid of all those options. Mm. So they'll once again say, look, we offered you democratic elections and you didn't take it. And um, so there's one thing that's the really, really interesting thing, which I will be watching very closely, is the reformists in Parliament are now divided about how to handle it. And there's a very strong call from one faction to completely walk away, really, from the whole political process. To well, just unofficially boycott it and walk away and let the hardliners take the lot. And then they can't blame the reformists anymore. They'll have to bear the responsibility. They'll have to take the blame, let them have it. Mm. And that's going to be very, very interesting. Challenging one because it's not always wise to give up your place of influence under a protest like that. You're predicting, Elizabeth Kendall, that they're in for a pretty rough road ahead in this year 2020. Things likely to get worse because, as you say, those Iranians, they're smart people. They know what's going on. They can see what's happening with the regime and the manipulation of their political processes. What do you predict as how things might intensify and get worse in the weeks and months ahead? Well, it's already guaranteed that the hardliners will dominate the next parliament. Um, There's also calls amongst the reformists for Rouhani to resign. You know, let the hardliners 
you know, you know, manipulate a hardliner into the presidency as well. Let the hardliners control every aspect of politics across the country. Let them have it. And of course, what we'll see then is we'll see the the policies becoming more and more oppressive. But they will have to. The hardliners will have to wear the blame. They'll have to, and the people's anger will rise. There's also talk um, of um, of uh, restlessness amongst many of, uh, of revolutionary guards and army personnel, very similar to things that I've seen uh, reported in China, where there have been revolutionary guards who are, who are walking away. They're getting out. They don't want to be part of this. And there's, I don't, you know, there's a possibility that in, you know. It could be a year from now, two years from now or more, if there's another really major uprising that is even bigger and more uh, convulsive than what we saw in November, that the army and the Revolutionary Guards might put down their weapons. They might say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to just stand here and, and blast people to shreds, blast Iranian university students. You know, that these amazing young people, we're not going to blast them with our guns. And you could see an, a, a result, for, a, a revolt from the military, a revolt even from the Revolutionary Guards. Well, I had long... Oh, sorry, go on. I was going yeah. to say, when you can't change things from within a democratically elected parliament, the only other option you have is that people will rise up and that protests will take to the streets and then the trigger for what could become another, what we might call a counter-revolution that could happen in Iran. And as you're saying, uh, if the army switched sides because they don't want to take up arms against their people. I mean, these are the, the sorts of things that, uh, you know, that when we've got an armed force or armed defence force, uh, they're there to def- to defend the people, not rise up against them. And uh, and this idea that an army might rise up against its own people, uh, you're suspecting that there may be something happening within the Iranian army which could see uh, big elements of that switching sides. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. But one thing I don't think is I don't think that if I don't think that they would be interested in ushering in like a Western-style democracy. I think that's what a lot of young Iranians want. But you see, the military in Iran is like the military in Indonesia and in Pakistan. They get immense amounts of wealth from the work they do, not from being in the army, but from being involved in all these campaigns and they've got a finger in every pie um, they would not want to see themselves in the position of a Western military, you know, put back in the barracks. Uh, I have I have wondered if there might be a time when there could be a, a, a military uprising, a military coup. I had actually long wondered if General uh, Soleimani might launch a military coup. He'd become like a cult figure in Iran. His, his face is everywhere. He's like the great hero of Iran. I thought, I used to think I wouldn't be surprised if there were protests against the regime if Soleimani moved to keep to seize power himself, and it would be. But it would it wouldn't be a reform. It would be like a military coup, and uh, who knows, like what that might be like for the Iranian people. It might not be much better. Might get rid of the regime, but it might not give them much freedom. 
But uh, so that's Soleimani's gone now. He's dead, so that that's not likely. But uh, I sort of I still wonder if there might be if the, there was a big enough revolt. If there might be a military coup. Interesting that you raise Soleimani because, of course, he was taken out in that bombing attack and uh, Mm. the Americans uh, were responsible for that. And, of course, the reactions against that and uh, the bringing down of that plane, uh, all sorts of things around that. But what you seem to be indicating here is that perhaps if Soleimani was still alive, there might have been some hope here for a military coup, but uh, not likely now. Uh, possibly. I really um, don't know. I think he would have, he had the, like, he was a cult figure. He had the personality, the ambition and everything to do that. And I think he, people were already talking about the prospect that he might become president of Iran. Mm. But um, I don't think it would have given the Iranians any freedom. Okay. I, I think it, they would have been under a military dictatorship rather than a clerical dictatorship. Okay. Elizabeth, let's get to how we might be thinking about this as Australians and for people listening to our conversation today. And I've been saying, you know, how do we pray as Australians? Because in so many respects, we're very powerless to be able to do anything uh, in a physical sense or in a diplomatic sense from Australia. Perhaps our uh, government representatives may be able to undertake some of that on our behalf. But let's talk about the ordinary Christian, uh, you and I, uh, in the prayer closet, uh, thinking about how we pray about the issues that are going on around the world. What's your encouragement to Christian believers and and what sort of power there might be in offering some prayers for our brothers and sisters in Iran? Well, the promises of God uh, form the the foundation for all the hope that we have when we pray. If we didn't believe in the promises of God, that God had already promised that through Jesus all the nations will be blessed, uh, if God hadn't made these promises, we could be feeling just completely hopeless, like, you know, where can this possibly go? But the promises of God are the foundation of our hope. Now, one thing that really struck me when I was studying Isaiah is this uh, poem that Isaiah writes in uh, chapter 2, sort of in the prologue of Isaiah, where he says that um, God is shaking the earth, essentially, to bring down all that is false. So what you get this image of God sort of taking the earth or taking the nation and shaking it, and all the things that, that are not true that are false and fake, they fall down. And and the poem says, and God alone will be exalted on that day. So it's like you've got the truth of God is like this pillar that's there. It's covered up by all these lies. And God is shake, gives it a big hard shake and all the lies fall off and the truth of God alone, God alone is exalted. It's a wonderful image. And I, so, and I think this is what's happening in the world. And it's happening in Iran, especially. Like Iran is a, a little, one of the like, like epicenters of shaking, I would say, at this point. And uh, there's, you know, God is there. This is God's earth. This is God's country. And God created these people. He loves them. And yet around, around the truth of God is, are all these lies. And there's all this Islam and there's all this stuff. And God's shaking it up. And as in China, the thing that's driving so many Iranians is despair. Islam is not working for them. It's causing misery in the country. 
in governance. It's causing repression. It causes misery in the home with the, uh, a lot of uh, misogyny. Iran has, has um, you know, endemic levels of drug abuse and of suicide. Um, they've got the lowest rates of mosque attendance in the Muslim world. Uh, their fertility has crashed. It's got one of the lowest levels of fertility in the world. Like, it's, it's in a really bad place, and it's mostly because the facade is crumbling. And when I see the facade crumbling, then I automatically think of that passage in Isaiah 2 that God is, is bringing down the, the, the lies so that, the, so that he alone will be exalted. But as it happens, there are Christians there, and we don't want Christians to be crushed under, under the debris. We want Christians to be able to endure. They need grace. They need wisdom. They need courage, and they need provision of their needs. That includes pastors who can have training. That includes uh, uh, scriptures, gospels, especially in, in Farsi, in their, in their mother tongue. They need leaders. Uh, they need all sorts of things. They need finances, I, and I don't even know how to get that in there. But you know, they need support for their ministries, and we can we can pray for them. Wow, that's the, that's the main way that we can really help them. And as we pray, God works. Well, I'll encourage listeners uh, because we're not saying send money. Because as you say, it's not so easy to do and there will be some organizations, some wonderful uh, supporters of the persecuted church uh, in organizations uh, that people may think of who may be able to get some finances in there for support of uh, people who are going to come under more intense persecution potentially as things start to deteriorate in the months ahead. Uh, But Elizabeth, always so good getting your insights and no doubt uh, you'd like a few more supporters for the organisation that you represent as Director of Advocacy at the Christian Faith and Freedom. And that's another one of those wonderful organisations that uh, has someone like Elizabeth to get the information out, to encourage our hearts as to what's happening in the world and how we as Christian believers might respond. So support for Christian Faith and Freedom is a good thing. Simply Google Christian Faith and Freedom. You'll find out how you might be able to be supportive of what's happening there. And undoubtedly, there'll be links from Christian Faith and Freedom to Elizabeth Kendall and the sorts of information that she's talking about today. Uh, Links to Elizabeth's website, elizabethkendall.com, where you can get her uh, prayer bulletin, when you can get insights into what's going on in the circumstances around the nation, including what we were talking about a little earlier, not just Iran, but also what's happening in our neighbours to the north, West Papua, and the oppression that appears to be really uh, significant from the Indonesian uh, government. So elizabethkendall.com. Let me also point you to a couple of books that Elizabeth has written. She mentioned uh, when she talks about Isaiah and his insight. Uh, Well, she's done some extensive studies in Isaiah and has drawn out uh, those principles as to how you deal with the persecution that comes against your Christian brothers and sisters. Turn back the battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. And her other book, After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East, elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much once again for sharing your heartbeat with us as to what's going on in 
in the nation of Iran. I'm sure listeners will be, uh, well, there's a lot of information to take in. So uh, the uh, encouragement to read a little more at elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us today on 2020. And thank you for having me, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 